0: Hi, it's Doug. I know you were expecting to hear the music. Uh don't worry, that's coming in a, in just a minute. Uh just have two quick housekeeping items uh, that I want to mention. Number 1 uh you may have noticed that uh, yesterday's the yesterday and today's episodes are uh, got a little bit jumbled in terms of the scripture reading that was listed on each of them uh it turns out that in uh you know I I wrote out the bible reading plan that you uh download and which I use for reference when I list the episodes online it turns out that when you type out close to a thousand scripture references sometimes you can repeat them or make mistakes uh, such is the case. So I've updated the Bible reading plan. You know, if you click on the link, you could get the updated version. I don't think it would really affect very much. And I can't guarantee there's no other errors in it. Um, but the um, the the what I sent out yesterday as episode 123 initially had the wrong scripture listen, listed on it. Uh, pretty much yeah, there there was an issue with, uh, I think, repetition of the Proverbs passage, as well as uh, the end of uh, John 3 was not listed. Instead, it went right into John 4. So hopefully you caught that. Hopefully that didn't throw you too much. My apologies. But um, yeah, I did my best to correct that. But I don't know. It doesn't seem to have updated in some of the feeds. So there might be some confusion. But I hope that doesn't throw you too much. The other thing I wanted to do is I wanted to just say thank you for supporting me uh for everybody who has uh reached out and and uh and blessed me and my family on uh, through my Kofi page uh, that is still available of course if that's something that you want to do. Um but it just I I've been telling some people that one of the things that I really I really appreciate um is knowing some of the people who are going through this um the, uh, the the who are who are walking through the bible with me in journey through scripture um some of you I really look up to spiritually and just knowing that the lord is blessing you and building you up and encouraging you in your faith through um this this ministry that he's laid on my heart is is a tremendous reward and so thank you thank you to those who have given uh, you know a lot of pastors Have um, what we call side hustles, you know, where you uh, try to uh, supplement your your income as a pastor uh, by doing something else, especially if you've got a large family. And there have been times where the thought has crossed my mind to maybe get a a job waiting tables, or maybe just work at a a local store a little bit to do that. And instead, um, instead, I'm doing this, you know, and so. Um, that's kind of like the way that this that this does help. That this gets to be my side hustle, where I'm able to do it in 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 um you know the, this kind of ministry in a way that I feel that the Lord has equipped me and blessed me to do. And so that um you know if you're wondering <laughs> you know um, maybe how to think of of a gift you gave towards this ministry, that is how it helps me and my family. So thank you very much for doing that. Of course, you don't have to. And uh, I'm going to be quiet now and get on with episode 124. Bye-bye. All right, welcome to Journey Through Scripture, day 124. Today we're looking at Judges chapter one through chapter two, verse five, and then Proverbs eleven verses nine through eighteen, and finally John chapter four verses one through twenty-six. Okay, we're beginning the book of Judges now. Um, Now the book of Judges is quite a ride. Um, It really describes um, the the depths to which Israel and her leaders plunge. Uh, especially in the absence of a king, and by that we might mean a wise earthly ruler, Um, but um, it's also hard to miss that the true king that Israel is lacking here is the Lord. So Judges, especially the beginning, um, very much is set as a kind of continuation of the, the book of Joshua, but highlighting some of the more negative aspects of the conquest of Canaan. Uh, And so we see it very much connected to the book of Joshua with the very first verse. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh. And so here they are looking to continue the, the conquest of Canaan. And uh, they ask, who shall go up? This is the kind of question that you can ask uh, when when the Lord uh, is inquired of, presumably with the Urim and the Thummim. And Judah and Simeon are selected. And remember that Judah and Simeon are kind of tied together, being that Simeon's territory is completely encapsulated within the territory of Judah. So they go up and they defeat Judah. 10,000 or 10 LFs, remember this is that that numbers issue I've spoken of before of, um, of, of soldiers from the city of Bezek and then the the king Adonai Bezek, which simply means right the, the, the Lord of Bezek fled and he is captured and um, so the the armies are defeated, the cities are taken. And they keep him alive, however, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes, which basically makes your hands and feet useless, right? This is kind of this ongoing, uh, torturous handicap now that this this king will have. And as soon as we're told that, we're told that he laments, his his lamentation over this situation now is 70 kings used to pick up scraps at my table um, who didn't have their thumbs and toes. So the idea here, of course, is that this king had done this to others and made them his his handicapped subjects, and now they've done this to him as well. And one way to read this would be as an application of the law of lex talionis, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of thing. But another way to read this is that instead of carrying out the cherem that the Lord had commanded them to do, where the, you are to put to death the inhabitants of the land, and or you do, are to drive them out, here they kind of keep this guy as a symbol of their victory, and they maim him in a way, in a way that just inflicts this cruel, ongoing, lifelong suffering that he will have. So, is is it? In other words, that they are adopting a Canaanite ethic here. Um, and, and warrant for that kind of reading on it comes uh, from really how the book of Judges will go. The book of Judges, the, the, the people of Israel really fall apart morally. Um, <clears throat> Jerusalem is, uh, is taken here, it is noted. Um, more on that in just a little bit. But that city, that famous city is specifically mentioned here, as well as areas uh, south of Jerusalem, the hill country, um, the Negev, which is this kind of southern desert area in the territory of Judah, as well as the Shephelah, or as it is called in the ESV translation, the lowlands, which are these um, hills, this hill country that is to the west um, uh, right before you get to the coastal plain. There on at uh, uh, on the western area in, in the territory of Judah, um, we're then given a version of what appears to be kind of the same story that we read about in Joshua fifteen with Caleb and the territory that he um, that he secured. So we're told about Hebron. We're told about Debir with um, with uh, which is captured by um, his nephew Othniel. Uh, remember, uh, Caleb promised to give his his daughter to whoever um, whoever uh, captured this city. And then the daughter asks for her father for the up for for springs, and he gives her the upper and lower springs. So this is something that we read about in the book of Joshua as well. We also learned that um, some of the descendants of uh, of Moses' father-in- law, Who is sometimes called Reuel sometimes he's called Jethro here he's called the Kenite Um, he uh, they they come and they inhabit some of this land as well Um, he comes from a place and enters uh, via a place called the city of palms what is that well that's actually another name for the city of Jericho and he settles in in the terry of Judah uh, next, we, we read about how Judah and Simeon uh, put the city of uh, Zephoth under Kherom, right? They, they executed the ban there, the complete uh, destruction of it, um, and called the place Hormah. Uh, you might recall this also from Numbers 21. This is, of course, before the Israelites had entered into the land and uh, were told about how they were attacked by the king of Arad, uh, who fought against Israel take some of them captive, and um, and they they vow a vow a vow to the Lord and the, the king of Arad as well as other cities who are mentioned there are given into their hand, um, and uh, and and then it says that the 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 name of that place was called Chormah, just as we read here in uh, Judges one of the city of Zephath so. So we, we apparently have uh, two different explanations of how this uh, area, and particularly here in Judges, uh, a specific city, uh, comes to be called that, comes to be named after Kherom, right? It's named Hormah. I don't think these are two conflicting accounts. I think they're just uh, describing two different uh, occasions in which Israel did battle with these people and ended up devoting them to destruction Numbers twenty one focuses on an, on earlier battles that took place with a number of cities, whereas here in Judges one, it's the one city that is focused on. Judah also takes uh, three cities here that are typically associated with the Philistines. That's Ashkelon, Gaza, and Ekron, and we're told that Yahweh was with Judah, um, and that they because of that they were able to take the hill country, but they were not able to take the plain uh because they had chariots of iron and as i noted back when we we saw this um in how in joshua 17 when ephraim is reluctant to uh conquer additional territory right they told joshua you know the land that we have we need we need more uh there's forests and there's canaanites and the canaanites have chariots of iron um so here we have, again, this other mention of the use of chariots, which itself is very intimidating, but they also are plated and uh, protected. They're not completely composed of iron, right? This would have been plating. And this attests to really the time period where this is happening, where we are transitioning into the Iron Age. That that transition happens at roughly around 1200, um, 1200 BC. Uh, that technology seems to have been spread uh, from the Hittites in the north uh, the Hittite kingdom uh, the Hinti- Hittites uh, were this kingdom that that dwelled in what we would consider Asia Minor and uh, they were an indo-european pe- uh, people and they spread this new technology the the knowledge of uh, carburization uh, to the south and it's um, and we have it attested in Lebanon and then Damascus and then it 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 spreads to the south, and here the Canaanites have this cutting-edge technology, which of course is very advantageous in battle. So the Judahites are not able to take this area, the lowland, the plain, where you're able to drive to ride chariots. In the hill country, you're not going to be able to bring your chariots so much, but in the plain, where the chariots of iron are, they're not able to take that. Uh, then the then the attention in the chapter starts shifting to some of the other tribes. So we learn how Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites in Jerusalem. Now this is a little bit weird because we just read about how um, how the. Judah and Simeon had fought and taken Jerusalem but now Benjamin did not so what we do see here is is probably um, a considerable period of time in which a lot of things are happening it's it's a quick story taking place in within one chapter but a, a larger period of time is covered and apparently um, first of all Jerusalem appears to be a very difficult city to hold. Um, a bunch of times now that it's been mentioned, that has been noted. So, remember uh, how in Joshua uh, uh, chapter 15, verse 63, right, we we read about how the Jebusites are there to this day. Uh, Just as we read here in Judges 1, and we're looking at verse 21, that uh, the the Jebusites live with the people of Benjamin, quote, to this day. They did not drive them out. Um, So, it's apparently a hard city to hold, and more than one tribes tribe went for it. It, it is close to the, to the border between Benjamin and Judah, so that's what appears to be happening. This is Jerusalem, at this point, is a very slippery city. It is hard to hold. It is difficult to, to hold. Then we're told about the house of jo- Joseph, by which is meant Ephraim, and uh, they take Bethel, and Yahweh was with them, um, and they take it by uh, spies going, and this is a little bit reminiscent of the taking of the city of Jericho, um, the, the city of Palms. And these spies encounter a man of Jericho who, um, just like Rahab, they, they promise to spare him and his family if, they, if, if he does something for them. In this case, it's showing them a way into the city, and he does this. And um, rather than being incorporated into Israel, he goes and he founds another city, which he names by the same name, because Bethel, before it is taken by the Israelites, um, at least at one point, is called Luz. Uh, this was noted in Genesis as well, and so he founds another city, um, or, you know, walled village, whatever it might be, called Luz, uh, which here is associated with Hittites, by which is probably not meant the Hittites that I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, because by this time the Hittite empire is defunct in, in the north, in Anatolia, in Asia Minor. Um, when the Hittites are mentioned, and they have been mentioned for, for a while now, in the land of Canaan, um, what we're probably seeing is are people from Hittite stock who have come south and who dwell in the land of canaan but it's it's not this doesn't mean that he went uh, you know all the way north into anatolia and 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 lived with these among people who are pretty much no longer there um it it simply means that this city is associated with the individuals living in the land whom the bible calls the hittites Okay, then after that, we get a bunch of other tribes, and notice these are all notes about how they, d- whom they didn't drive out. Okay, remember, I've mentioned in the book of Joshua how we started to see some cracks in the conquest narrative. Now here, those cracks are widening. They're serious. They're cracks big enough to no longer be able to call safe light auto glass, right, and <laughs> seal up that. Now it's it's serious. Um, Manasseh did not drive out the Canaanites there, but they put them to forced labor. And okay, so it's not even that they weren't able to, they, they they wanted free work out of them, and so they put them, they enslaved them. Uh, Ephraim does not drive out theirs. Uh, the Canaanites in their territory, although here we're not told about them putting them to forced labor. Zebulun does not drive out, uh, does not completely drive out the inhabitants of the land, but instead put them to forced labor. Asher does not drive out the inhabitants of the land. We're not told about forced labor with him. Um, Naphtali does not drive out the inhabitants, but put them to forced labor. And Dan does the same, puts them to forced labor. And so, um, this this uh, today's reading wraps up with the beginning of chapter 2, when the angel of the Lord comes from Gilgal, and he goes to a place called Bochim, and recounts to the Israelites who are summoned there how he brought them up out of Egypt, and, you know, a brief summary of what he had, the Lord has done for them, but they have not obeyed his voice. They have not. They, the, these cracks now have, um, have become evident and, and are all over the place. Uh, the Canaanites are still dwelling in the land. They have not been completely driven out for whatever reason. And, and mainly the reason that's focused on is that they, they wanted to enslave them rather than, rather than expel them from the land. um, now they are in this situation in which they have all these people who worship other gods living in their midst. Um, and so the Lord basically um, cuts them off and says, I will now not drive them out because you're not willing to do your part. Um, I'm Don't expect me to do mine. I, I respond with blessing to obedience, to faithfulness, not to... Um, you kind of deciding to do your own thing. And they are going to be thorns in your side, and their gods are going to be a snare to you. So this evil that Israel will end up doing is kind of in itself a judgment, right? That that God is, is giving them over to what they have chosen and to the consequences of what they have chosen. And the people there uh, weep, and therefore it's called uh bochem, okay? Okay. Uh, the, the the Hebrew word for to, to cry is baka, and so bochim is is, is weeping. They call the place we, weeping, and they also offer sacrifices to the Lord. But what does the Lord want? Does he want weeping and sacrifices? No. He wants obedience. He wants faithfulness. He wants them to love him and to obey him and to walk according to the, to, to his law. Um, so that's how the book of Judges kind of gets set up. All right, now let's take a look at Proverbs chapter 11. We're uh, doing verses 9 through 18 today. And um, here uh, we are we are in the midst of Proverbs. We're looking at a lot of these, um, these short aphoristic statements. And we begin in verse 9. Uh, With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but the knowledge of the righteous... Uh, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. Um, recall, last time we were in Proverbs, I pointed out how a lot of these Proverbs have to do with uh, the righteous, and they also have to do with the mouth, with lips. And here we see both of those combined into one proverb. Um, so, the, the words of the godless man in his mouth, what does that do? It destroys other people, but um, that's because he doesn't have knowledge. He doesn't have wisdom, because by knowledge... The righteous are delivered. Um, Verse 10, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. That one's just very powerful imagery there, focusing on uh, how the legacy of somebody who uh, who who is wicked versus the legacy of someone who is righteous impacts an entire city and how they are remembered. Um, in verse 11, again, focus on a city. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it's overthrown. So again, what's the outcome um, uh, on other people's lives uh, of your own right uprightness or your own wickedness? Uh, verse 12, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Um uh so you we all have opportunity to use our words to cut other people down especially behind their back but the one who has understanding is not the one who goes around running his mouth and and talking badly about other people but is the one who remains silent who doesn't who who keeps his mouth shut and doesn't seek to harm other people with or or their reputations with his words and then Again, we have this focus on slandering. Remember all these all these proverbs about mouth, about speech. It's kind of amazing how much uh, wisdom literature is devoted to how we speak and what we say. But here in verse 13, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy keeps a thing covered. Um, uh, that this doesn't mean that there's never an opportunity that there's never a time when it's appropriate. To, to bring something evil into the light, um, but rather, if, if, but if somebody trusts you with something and all things being equal, right, uh, you, you somebody who is trustworthy is somebody who, again, can keep their mouth shut. Uh, they can keep that thing, that matter covered. Can you be trusted if someone comes to confide in you, I think is the idea here. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in abundance of counselors, there is safety. When you have to make a decision, do you seek counsel? Do you seek other people? Do you seek wisdom? Wisdom, as we've seen, is something that comes from others and is accumulated over time communally and given to us. Um, verse 15, whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure. Um, this idea of security, right, is is uh, somebody... Um, uh, needs to make a vow or something like that, or or it it has some kind of legally binding commitment, but they don't have the means to pay for it, and so they come to you. Uh, This is a scenario which we were cautioned about, actually, in Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 5. You could go back and read about that there. And the idea is not that it's never, like, ethical to do that, it's that knowing knowing that You might be getting yourself into a situation that's more than you bargained for, because you have no guarantee that what you um, put up, that the security or the pledge that you put up, that you are going to get that back. You're totally at the mercy of somebody now who is who is in debt, or who is um, unable to, to 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 cough up what is needed for security or for a pledge um, at the beginning of this business transaction. So you're kind of like throwing your lot in with somebody who is vulnerable. Uh verse 16, a gracious woman gets honor of vile but and violent men get riches. Here is a proverb where it's kind of like this is the way of the world. Okay? So violent men get riches. That's true. That doesn't mean you should be violent. There's many more things that are that are bad about that, but what would you rather have? Would you rather have honor, or what? Would you rather have have riches? Um, in verse seventeen: A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. Um, so it's it's not only it's to your benefit that you are kind, and it's to your detriment that you are that you are cruel. And then finally, in verse eighteen, the wicked earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness will get a sure reward. I love that idea of sowing righteousness. Notice that sowing, of course, is a n- metaphor that Jesus uses a lot. Um, but the idea with sowing is that it's something that takes a while for you to enjoy your fr- its fruit. But when it comes, it's totally worth it. And so it is with righteousness. It's, it's, it brings you less immediate gain. But in the end, um, there is sure reward you can be certain that uh, that 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 it will be well worth it to sow righteousness. Okay, let's go over to John chapter four. So um, Jesus has been baptizing in the vicinity of John, and remember we saw some of the interaction um, between them yesterday, and um, and he becomes aware that the Pharisees had become aware <laughs> that he's been baptizing in even more people than John, and so when he, Jesus realizes that. Um, and he knows that uh, there, there might, that might be trouble. Um, uh, recall, like the messianic secret. Remember, we we're talking about that, especially in the book of Mark, where he keeps his identity hidden uh, so as not to kind of instigate things or stir things up before it's time. So he splits. And in order to go from Judea to Galilee, you have to pass through Samaria. And um, as we see here, uh, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We've talked about this a little bit as we've encountered this uh, people group in the other Gospels, um, where uh, the Samaritans are kind of like the Jewish people, but they're they're separate from them. They have this history that has uh, resulted in a lot of enmity between them and their Jewish um, brethren, uh, to where they really don't want to have anything to do with one another. They kind of despise one another. Uh, which of course makes the parable of the good Samaritan all the more shocking, um, uh, and we see some of the Samaritans' distinctives here. So it's it's about noon, and the, Jesus's disciples go into the city to to buy food, or to the village to buy food, and. Um, Jesus sits down by a well. Now, this well is kind of significant. It's Jacob's well. It's, it's the, the, the well that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And we actually read a little bit about this yesterday. Remember when we talked about where Joseph's bones were buried? Um, that it was that plot of land that in Genesis 33, I believe it's verse 19, um, where he, he he purchased a plot of land from Chamor and the inhabitants of Shechem. And, uh, so this would not only have been the location of a well that belonged to Jacob by virtue of that purchase, but also he's near, they're near the bones of, of Joseph. Um, but at any rate, Jesus is there. He's weary from his journey. It's about the sixth hour, uh, which is, um, noon. Remember the hours are counted from roughly six in the morning. So the sixth hour is noon and a woman from Samaria comes out to draw water. She comes out alone. Uh, Typically, the women would have come out in in groups, but here this woman is ostracized. So you're always like you're already like, hmm, a little bit interesting, Uh, and she has to come out at noon when it's the hottest. So she's not able to come out when you do when you're to do this difficult task of drawing and carrying a lot of water. Here, for some reason, this woman is being forced to do it in the in the middle of the day, and I think there's a lot in here that where where we should be. Um, have some pity on this woman, okay? I know what's about to transpire in the conversation that they're about to have. Sometimes the woman is just emphasized as this terrible sinner, but there's a lot here that I think we, we're to look at her as kind of like disadvantaged and, um, and, and, and in a really miserable situation in life. So this woman who for some reason can't come out with the other women now has to come out at noon to draw water and Jesus says to her, give me a drink because he's all alone. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And the woman realizes that here's this Jewish man kind of breaking taboo. Um, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Um, And John adds, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So, Jesus immediately starts turning this into a spiritual conversation. And in some ways, similar to, this, to the um, conversation with Nicodemus, as Jesus is trying to draw her towards speaking not of, quote-unquote, earthly things, but of, quote-unquote, heavenly things, okay? Um, remember, he who is, belongs to the earth speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Um, chapter 3, verse 31 Um uh, he's gonna he's gonna start talking to her with all these things with like double meanings and trying to t- trying to to drive her into this more profound conversation a dialogue about spiritual things right he's gonna take the things from her own life and kind of use those as jumping off points um, to witness to her about himself about who he is about her need for him um, and uh, and she's gonna have a little bit of a hard time but eventually she will get there as we see. So, he tells her this. Now, the mention of living water here, too, um, is a couple. Uh, so, first of all, living water, can this expression can simply mean running water, um, as, as it does in uh, the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When we read about fresh water, um, and we'll make something of this in a, in a minute, something else of this in a minute. Uh, but that's the same expression that is used. That's the way the Greek translators translate it. Uh, Hudor zon. Okay, it's, 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 it's living water. It's water that flows. Okay, so there's a sense in which this is like very, um, it, it's non-stagnant. It moves. Okay, but also uh, so far we realize that there's all these double meanings in John and Jesus is often speaking in these kind of cryptic ways. Living water is also water that brings life. Now another dimension to this that I suspect—I don't know it for sure—but I definitely suspect it—is that in those passages in the Old Testament where we where we read about fresh water or running water, um, uh, this is the kind of water that is to be used in the cleansing of people from well uncleanness. We see it in Leviticus chapter fourteen, okay, with the ritual there where you take a you know one bird and kill it and uh, you do it over. And then use some uh, uh, fresh water, which, as I think I noted, then uh, is literally in the Hebrew, my um, which is which is living water, which is literally translated living water. Um, and again, in the Greek Septuagint, it's the same um, as we find here in the Greek of John, zone, living water. So you cleanse lepers, and part of what you cleanse lepers with is living water. The same with the people with the discharge and the same with people in Numbers 19 who are exposed to something that is dead. Okay. So there's a cleansing aspect to the living water as well. And again, I'm not hundred percent sure about that, but that certainly is an intriguing possibility here. So the woman says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So you don't have a bucket. Where are you going to get this water from? Again, she's having trouble kind of grasping that Jesus is saying something deeper to, to her. And she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Kind of like trying to name drop on him. So like, hey, you Jewish guy who think you're something hot. Well, you know what? We got Jacob's well here, right? Right. Um, and Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. Notice the double meaning here of, of thirst, of the drinking of water. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this sounds good to the woman, And but again, because she's she's maybe now willing to go a step deeper, but she's not quite where Jesus is. Sir, give me this water so well, I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water because, of course, that journey kind of stinks. It stinks to have to do it in the middle of the day, and it's it's a chore that even if you didn't, it would still stink to have to do so. You, you have water where nobody will be thirsty again. Um, and so Jesus then switches the topic, and he says go, call your husband and come here, which is something someone might have been expected to say had he wanted to engage in a conversation with a woman, especially a woman who was a stranger, in the first place. But he tells her, go call your husband. And she says to him, she says, well, I, I have no husband. And then Jesus just pries right into the, to, to the center of her life and says, you're right in saying that because you've had six husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband, so she's living with a man who she's not married with, married to. And uh, this is often taken as kind of like this woman is loose. Uh, she's, but but I would just remind people that that by this time in Jewish law, it was very uncommon for women to be able to initiate divorce. It wasn't impossible, but it was uncommon and. And and every time a woman gets divorced, right, she becomes kind of damaged goods, right? It's one thing to not marry a virgin; it's another thing to marry a woman who's been, uh, you know, and who has been married before. But now a woman who's been married six times, um, it's it's sounds a lot more like this is a woman who's kind of been passed around and used uh, by a lot of men. And so that's why I say, like, I think we need to be easy on her and, and look at her more through the eyes of. Of pity, and uh, I mean, e- even if it was a result of her sin, we would should still, but uh, but nevertheless, I just wonder if who's the woman being portrayed here is um, is somebody who is promiscuous, or if there's something out of necessity she's been forced to um, uh, go to man after man after man in her life until this is what has become of her. And the woman says to her, because obviously he wouldn't know this if he weren't, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then now that he's a prophet, once again, this kind of like name dropping thing, this kind of like, well, she wants to engage in this, you know, we've got Jacob's well here. What do you Jewish people have? And now I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, um, but you say that it's in Jerusalem that people have to ought to worship what she's trying to do here is she's trying to kind of change the subject and um she's trying to engage him in this classic age-old dispute between samaritans and the jewish people because the jewish people in accordance with the old testament right understand that jerusalem is the place that god had chosen to make his name dwell and that is where the temple was to be um but they worshiped samaritans and reject the rest of the old testament they only have the pentateuch uh, and they have their own version of it and it's called the samaritan pentateuch and um and indeed they believe that it's on mount gerizim remember that's one of the mountains that's the mountain of blessing when the people come into the land they stand half of them stand on gerizim half of them stand on Ebal, and that's within the territory of samaria so that's where they go to worship and she wants to engage jesus in that but jesus tells her Woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will people worship the Father. So the hour is coming, and remember in John, he calls the time, well, you probably wouldn't know this yet, but later on in John, we'll see Jesus call, my hour has come, okay? And that meaning it's time for me to go to the cross, the the time of my glory. So I wonder if there's a connection here, but the hour is coming when location isn't going to matter at all. It's it's not going to be about where you worship. It's going to be about worshiping in spirit and in truth. Recall Jesus is the one who gives the spirit without measure. He, uh, because and it, which is a good thing because one needs to be born again to enter into the king to see the kingdom of God or to enter into the kingdom of God. You have to be born of the water and of the spirit. Notice here we've got water in this account. We've got spirit the living water, who who will never be thirsty again, and uh, you must worship in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So this is fitting for worshiping a God who is himself spirit. And the woman says to him, because she realizes he's talking about the messianic age, right? and she says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, and "This is probably the most, the clearest, uh, or at least one of the clearest statements by Jesus uh, that he is indeed the Messiah in all of the Gospels." Okay, Jesus says to her, "I who speak to you am He. I am the Messiah." And exactly what happens after he drops that bomb on her is something that we will learn tomorrow. Um, and until then. Keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.